just hit me in the face. That's the right move. Like mm-hmm. three to my face. This bird is not going to do anything. And they'd be like, okay, I guess. And I was like, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the nice, helpful magic player who would rather see my opponent, you know, learn how to play than win. And you're the one who's like kicking them under the table, calling a judge. My opponent's writhing on the floor in blood. I think that's a game rule violation. Hello, I'm David Prestwood. And I'm Christian Wright. Welcome to the very first episode of Let's Remember Some Cards, a new Magic the Gathering podcast where we, you guessed it, remember some cards. Friends, when you're with fellow Magic the Gathering players, one thing is certain. You're going to remember some cards. That's right. Magic players love remembering cards. You're going to tell stories. You're going to argue about what cards are sweet versus good versus unplayable jank. And that's what we're going to do here. That's right. This is not a competitive Magic podcast. We're not going to tell you what standard deck won the Pro Tour last week or give you hot sideboarding tips for that new hot modern deck. There are plenty of people who can do that. We're going to remember some cards, sets, and formats from Magic's days gone by. We're going to tell you stories, and we're going to interview guests about the cards they want to remember. First, before we get into the show, let's introduce ourselves. So I'm David Prestwood. I live in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been playing Magic since 1994. I started when Legends was the most recent expansion, and I stopped playing during Visions in 1997. I only started playing again after 16 years off, just before the Theros expansion was released. I'm Christian Wright, and I live in Herndon, Virginia. It's interesting that your long break started when it did. I started in 5th edition myself, so we have a long continuity for all of Magic's history. Did you have any gaps? I did. So I I had a small gap um, with Champions of Kamigawa block. Okay. Any particular reason for that block? I It was a weird time in my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> too much anime. Um, but also, uh, I just, you know, I that was when I took a break. I, I Magic was not good then, I guess is the long and short of it. Okay, so when we want to remember cards from the Champions block, we'll be sure to have somebody on who was actually around during that time, since neither of us were. Yeah, and I can't pronounce the cards either, so that'll be doubly important. Okay, we'll do a little research ahead of time. So Christian and I met at Labyrinth Puzzles and Games in the heart of Washington, D.C. We occasionally drafted together, but I think where we really bonded was talking about cards. I left the D.C. area a few years ago, and we have stayed in touch through Magic, so we thought we should invite all of you to join us. And that's the fun about Magic. You make new friends, you connect with old friends by remembering all the cards. Not just the good cards, and not just the bad cards. All the cards. (laughs) That's all the cards. (laughs) So to kick things off this week on Let's Remember Some Cards, we're going to remember Magic's mythological set, Theros. So please remember with us for the next half hour or so. So David, let's set the scene. It's fall of 2013. We are just rolling off of one of the most successful sets of all time in the Return to Ravnica block. Dragon's Maze was a dud, and the core set for that year wasn't too memorable. Everyone is hoping that, on the heels of Innistrad and Return to Ravnica, Theros will complete a trifecta of great blocks. Instead, in retrospect, we didn't necessarily get an all-time classic, but the mythology-laden and enchantment-driven Theros block did bring some cool things to the game. David, what do you remember most about Theros? Well, I remember trying to recall all of the Greek and Roman mythology references I hadn't thought about since 6th grade. I remember we had enchantment creatures enchanting other creatures. I remember the uh, biggest bomb in the format was a common name, Gary. Uh, And I don't remember much of the removal because it was pretty bad. And honestly, that was okay. Um, 
I'm interested in hearing your historical take. So as I mentioned, when Theros was released, I was just coming back and I kind of cut my teeth drafting on the set, but I had no idea what I was doing. It's interesting you say that because, well, Theros was the first block to show that you can focus on the simple act of creatures punching each other in the face, combat, and making a compelling draft format around that. Theros wasn't perfect, but it had a lot of play to it. A big part of that was that it had some exciting new mechanics. Well, let's talk about some of those mechanics. So since we're here to talk about cards, I propose we take a card that's emblematic of each set mechanic to explain the mechanic. That sounds great. Let's start off with Bestow. Okay. Uh, Bestow was an ability on enchantment creatures. You could cast the creature normally, or you can cast it as a creature aura for its Bestow cost. The aura would... The aura... The aura would give the enchanted creature some ability and add its power and toughness. If the enchanted creature died, the aura would fall off and remain on the battlefield as a creature, even if it died while the aura was on the stack. Super cool ability. Um, Kind of the emblematic poster child of it was Nimbus Nyad. Nimbus Nyad was two colorless and a blue. Uh, Enchantment creature Nymph. Nymph? Nymph? Ugh, I don't know. Words. I'm not so good with the words sometimes. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Bestow... Four colors in the blue, uh, flying, an enchanted creature gets plus two, plus two, and has flying. The nice thing about Nimbus Nyad and all the bestow cards, essentially, is that they all had a nice mirror. So if the creature was a 2-2 flyer like Nimbus Nyad, it um, was reflected in what that bonus it gave to the creature and enchanted. Yeah, the thing I thought was most interesting about bestow is that it really took away some of the drawback of playing creature auras you know you're worried about with an aura on the stack they're going to kill your creature or bounce your creature out from under it and then you lose the aura here um it still comes into play and sure you know with nimbus naiad you've paid five mana for a two two flyer and it's overcosted, but you still get something out of it yeah and it was also nice because um it was a hidden it was your plant you had a creature but also you had the hidden bonus that you made your other creatures bigger and it allowed, like, I remember playing decks with, like, 21 creatures. And that was about par for the course, but maybe 10 of them were uh, were bestow creatures that were enchanted onto other creatures. Yeah, I mean, I definitely played Nimbus Nyad as a 2-2 flyer. And I absolutely played it as an enchantment that gave plus 2, plus 2, and flying to something that I wanted to get in the air. And they, were across, they had bestow creatures across all five colors, so you mm-hmm. weren't limited. You didn't have to force yourself to draft only the Bant colors or the Naya colors or something ridiculous like that. And what was nice, if I remember correctly, David, um, there was creatures that you wanted to bestow that had uh, the heroic keyword. What was heroic again? So heroic was great. It was a creature ability. And whenever you cast a spell that targeted one of your creatures with heroic, some ability would trigger. So this was often a plus one, plus one counter for the creature, but some of the effects were pretty wild. I think the emblematic creature here was Wingsteed Rider, a card that originally was underestimated and became a top pick and draft later in the format. So Wingsteed Rider was one white, white for a 2-2 human knight with flying. And it had heroic. Whenever you cast a spell that targets Wingsteed Rider, you put a plus one, plus one counter on Wingsteed Rider. So what a great target for these bestow spells or combat tricks. You could make these things pretty big. Yeah, and I remember they got really big. Uh, you Once you put a Nimbus Nyad on it, you put some other bestow creatures. Um, Nyla's, uh, I think, I can't remember the exact Nyla's number. There's a green one. They gave it plus three, plus three, and trample. Um, all of a sudden, you had a 6-6 flyer that was too big to really deal with in combat, and it was it made for fun magic, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, d- 
with some of the things, the plus one plus one counter was so relevant. I did a lot of hopeful Eidolon, which was a one one with lifelink that bestowed for three and a white. So you'd play hopeful Eidolon on this, and you'd end up with a four four flying lifelink on turn four. Um, you don't lose a lot of those games. Oh yeah, and that's another card that was also underrated. And people realize that even if you're paying four mana to give a creature plus one plus one a lifelink, you had a creature left over after that. That was amazing. Absolutely. You had a 1-1 lifelink that then you could put more bestow creatures on and start the whole cycle over again. It was creatures on creatures on waffles, and it was fantastic. That uh, is kind of oddly delicious, and now I'm hungry. Um, so before I have to run to the kitchen, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about devotion, which kind of reflected the gods and goddesses and um, you know the people's reaction to them. Yeah, it was a flavor home run for sure. So Devotion, it cared about the number of color pips and the mana costs of permanence you control, and that's the number up in the upper right-hand corner of cards. And it was referred to a color like Devotion to Green or Devotion to Black, etc. The highlight card of the whole set really with Devotion was a card called Gray Merchant of Asphodel. He was a three-colorless black-black 2-4 zombie, and when he entered the battlefield... He, uh, each opponent lost X life, where X is your devotion to black, and then you gain life equal to the life lost this way. Yeah, you know, this is the Gary I mentioned earlier. You know, people called him Gary. Uh, pretty simple mechanic. You just look on the battlefield and see how many black mana symbols are in the mana cost of your permanence. You know, so when you play Gray Merchant, you, that gives you two. So at the very least, it's a five mana two four that drains for two. But chances are you're playing a lot of their black cards. Oh yeah, not only you're playing a lot of black cards, your cards weren't dying, either they were enchanted onto other creatures, or the removal was just so poor that creatures stuck around for a long time. Um, there was a murder reprint called Hero's Downfall, which killed creatures and planeswalkers uh, for a colorless and black black. That was the best removal spell in the set, it was also rare. So you, yep. your creatures weren't dying, and so this thing, how much, did you usually, I usually drain for like about 10 or 12, like what was... What was your standard train? That would have been ambitious for me. I don't know that uh, I was as high on this card, so I probably didn't get it as often, but I did see it played multiple times in standard, the rare, you know, five mana common creature that is standard playable, where people were playing a lot of pack rats, uh, making more pack rats, and had a lot of black pips. A lot of black pips. Pips. Uh, another mechanic that really, really reflected the Greek and Roman mythology theme was monstrous. Definitely. The idea that you could magically pump and make monsters more powerful translated really well from Greek and Roman mythology. So this was one of my personal favorites. Um, monstrosity was a creature ability that came with a cost. You would pay some cost to activate the ability Monstrosity X, and then you would get X plus one plus one counters on a creature, and it becomes monstrous. Um, many of these creatures had additional abilities that would trigger when it became monstrous. And the kicker was that once a creature was monstrous, that's it. You can activate the ability as many times as you want, but you won't get the ability once it's already monstrous. Um, so, you know, there's a common that I always think of here, Nessian Asp, which was four in a green for a four, five snake with reach. Um, and you could pay six in a green. It had monstrosity four. So you could make it an eight, nine reach. I love this card too. I... Yeah. Wasn't high on it at first. I thought it was too expensive, but once I realized the format was really slow, um, I started to play this card a lot more often. And I would 
usually have two or three copies in my decks, and it was one of the few cards that actually can go toe-to-toe with the card we mentioned earlier, Wingsteed Rider. That's right. Yeah, this was exceptionally powerful. I think Wizards learned their lesson a little bit. When they reprinted it in Conspiracy Take the Crown, they shifted it up to Uncommon. Oh, yeah. It was fun. And my favorite was when people miscounted your mana, and all of a sudden you had an 8-9 reach creature, and their eyes just went big, and you went, I had 7 mana. (laughs) Yeah, it's my two-headed snake. What do you expect? Exactly. Um, The last mechanic in this set uh, was a returning mechanic that after this set became evergreen and um, one of my favorites, let's talk about Scry. So I'm glad you asked about Scry. It is one of my favorite evergreen mechanics in the game. Scry, uh, it's first appeared in Fifth Dawn and it took a bit of a time off, if I remember correctly, and came back into Theros. And it's crazy now because it's so common, but this was the big, this is a big deal when they announced Theros. So Scry, it's an ability that would say Scry X, and that meant you looked at the top X cards of your library, and you, put, you could put any number of, the, number of those cards on the bottom and the rest back on top in any order. Um, it not only transited, be, transcended being an evergreen mechanic, it's now part of the mulligan process that begins each game. That's right. You know, we don't only Scry in every set, we Scry in every format when we mulligan. It's fantastic. Um, Absolutely. So kind of the emblematic card are it's an example of one of the cards that had scry that worked really well um, by adding scry onto it it was a card called titan strength it was mm-hmm. one red it was an instant and it said target creature gets plus three plus one until end of turn and then you scry one yeah you know a simple little combat trick only gets one toughness so maybe you're trading it for an opponent's creature i mean the three power is enough to to do some damage um you know maybe you're two for wanting yourself to kill something big but that scry one in a deck that plays combat tricks like this a lot of times that gets a land on the bottom of your deck and that's the value of that is hard to overestimate exactly and it it's well costed because i wouldn't normally just play a combat trick that was target creature gets plus three plus one until in a turn that's very lacking even at just one mana but the fact that it's scry one kind of made it worth it and it made it it's not it's not necessarily a free spell but it's almost it's fixing your draws and so it, it for one mana to fix your draw and to possibly kill another creature it was always worth it absolutely well i have a pack of theros here and now that we know the kind of things we might see, I think we should crack this pack, uh, talk a little bit about the limited playability of the cards, um, and um, figure out what we would pick if, if we were in pack one, pick one. Let's do this. This is super exciting. All right. I'm going to open a pack. Oh, it's so good. Okay, first things first. Do you have a guess on the basic land? Um, I'm looking into the pack, and... I'm guessing the best basic land of all time, forest. No, you're already wrong. Both both about the best basic land being a forest and the pack, it's a mountain. <sighs> all right, so let's start with the first common. The first card we have is Lash of the Whip. It's four and a black for an instant. Target creature gets minus four, minus four until end of turn. Um, actually kind of decent. One of the few instant speed removal spells in this set. Yeah, one of the few instant speed removal spells. It kills a lot of stuff, um, but as we talked about in the mechanics part, uh, creatures got a lot bigger than that minus four, minus four very quickly. So it seemed good at first, but kind of became underwhelming once people realized it didn't do as much as you liked. Right. 
just coming back to the game of Theros, I probably played more of this card than I should just because it looked like a removal spell. It, uh, you know, when you have this in your hand and your opponent has a Nessian Asp, you feel pretty bad. And it's funny because there was another black common removal spell, Rite of the Serpent, which just destroyed a creature, but it cost six. And again, when the first first came out, everyone thought that was ridiculous. Why would you pay six mana to kill a creature? And you got some other incidental effect, but who cares? Uh, I want to say I took that card higher a lot more often after a few weeks of playing Theros. That's right. Uh, you know, any port in a storm, my friend. <laughs> All right. Our next card is Minotaur Skull Cleaver. So Minotaur Skull Cleaver, uh, two colorless and a red, creature Minotaur Berserker, it's a 2-2, it has haste, and when it enters the battlefield, it, it gives itself plus two plus zero until end of turn. So there was a minor Minotaur theme in this set, as you would expect from the mythological set. So this one comes down as a 4-2 haste, functionally, for three, um, and then every turn after that, it's a 2-2. Kind of underwhelming, but it hits really hard that first time around. Oh, yeah. And my favorite was when players would play it and they wouldn't attack with it. And so they just, they just made a three mana two, two haster. It was, I did that. I will fully admit I did that myself. It was always awkward. That's fair. There was some Minotaur support in this set. There were some Minotaur lords. Um, they printed some more in uh, Born of the Gods, the next set, but it never really came together. It wasn't like there was some kind of tribal standard deck you could really play. No, but there were draft build arounds. I think the, the, minotaur lord was black red so that's right you know it was easy to build like and all the minotaurs appeared in black red so it fed into it it was very appropriate all right next card is chosen by heliod this is one in a white for an enchantment aura enchant creature uh when chosen by heliod enters the battlefield draw a card and enchanted creature gets plus zero plus two um not a super exciting card but obviously in the set to trigger heroic yeah I don't. Did you ever play this? I don't think I ever played this. I don't know that I ever stooped quite this low. I was more interested in cards that provided power and not toughness. Yeah, and to be honest, um, when you opened this, I had forgotten what the card did until you read it. Okay, not exciting. I uh, At this point, I'm still on Lash of the Whip. Uh, 100% agree. Okay, well, our next card I don't think will change your mind. Congratulations, you get another Minotaur. It's a Borderland Minotaur. Yeah, Borderland Minotaur. It's two colorless and two red for a 4-3 Minotaur Warrior, and it has a very large flavor text box. It has no abilities. It's just a 4-3. I'm all about a good vanilla creature, and this is a vanilla creature. Super vanilla, but it has one thing going for it. A, has a lot of flavor text. That's always positive. And B, it is better than its alpha ancestor, Herloom Minotaur. That's true. That was uh, one red red for a two three. So I yeah, I'll pay one extra mana for two more power. Yeah, I mean Seems bad. Well, it killed quicker. Sure. Okay, you know what? Next card. Next card is Shredding Winds. Shredding Winds is two and a green for an instant. It deals seven damage to a creature with flying. So um plummet is a card we see in a lot of sets. Uh, that just destroys a creature with flying. This deals seven damage to one, which in a set with possibly giant wingsteed riders is probably strictly worse. It's not only strictly worse, it costs one more colorless than Plummet. Um, I know you can't print Plummet in every set, and their Wizards has been good about having these variants, but yeah, I wouldn't play Shredding Winds either. 
No, and you know the current standard legal set is Dominaria, in which they have actually printed a strictly better version of this card, Pierce the Sky, which is one in a green for an instant that deals seven damage to a creature with flying. So, Shredding Winds, you are uh, you are out of here. The next card is Satyr Hedonist. Satyr Hedonist. It's one colorless in a green. It's a satyr, as the name says. It's a two-one, and it has an ability that says red sacrifice satyr hedonist add three red to your mana pool did you ever play this never okay so i 100 percent did because as i was newly back to the game i looked at its ability and i said oh man it's dark ritual on a creature how could this be bad the answer is it could be satyr hedonist <laughs> i think uh lash the whip is still our uh our our, our leader at this point halfway through the pack but, Absolutely. Uh, well, if you like two mana, two one satyrs, I have one for you. It's Satyr Rambler is the next card. It's one in a red for a two one satyr with trample. Eh. Eh. To be fair, though, it didn't really take off, but it was designed to be a guy that likes to have bestow creatures on it. Yeah, I just found better targets for bestow. You know, a two two that you're making flying is probably better than a two one with trample you're making flying. All right, next for you is Leonin Snarecaster. Leonin Snarecaster, one colorless and a white. It's a 2-1 cat soldier, and when it entered the battlefield, uh, you could choose to tap target creature. Okay, was this good? No. No. It seems like something that could be good if you're very, very aggressive, but, um, you know, it's not like a creature that taps it and lets it not untap it's not something that you can re-trigger unless you're somehow recasting it over and over yeah it doesn't seem very exciting to me not very exciting okay well our next card is one of my favorites from the set it's feral invocation it's two and a green for an enchantment aura with flash enchant creature and the enchanted creature gets plus two plus two so why was this your favorite I liked the idea that it's a combat trick, a little, you know, overcosted at three mana for plus two plus two, but it stayed on the creature afterward. It's basically giving it two plus one plus one counters, um, which I would always pay three mana for. And the other nice thing about it was it had the hidden heroic trigger aspect of it. Um, That's right. Yeah. So at instant speed. At instant speed. So it was it was very versatile. Yeah. This uh, this is a card I played a lot of. I'm, I would still be on Lash of the Whip at this point. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, well, let's stay on the aura train. Uh, if you can read for us, Fate Foretold. Oh, Fate Foretold. So Fate Foretold, it's a one colorless and a blue. It's an aura, uh, enchants a creature, and when Fate Foretold enters the battlefield, you draw a card. And when the mm -hmm. enchanted creature dies, its controller draws a card. Mm -hmm. So how slow will you take your divination? It's a better rate, but it was a little slow. It's a little slow. I was interested in this card because I do like drawing cards, but I don't know that I ever cast it limited. I think I played it as a one of because it was a heroic enabler, but it mm -hmm. was not a very good heroic enabler. That's true. Well, let's see if the uncommons are any better. We have Tormented Hero, which is one black mana for a 2-1 human warrior. It enters the battlefield tapped. And whenever you cast a spell that targets it, each opponent loses one life and you gain life equal to the life lost that way. So you drain for one, basically. I played this card. I was a big fan of it. A one mana 2-1 seems exciting. Um, you know, I think this is a rate that we're getting more of 
in the last few years, certainly, than we have in the past. Um, I don't recall playing it a lot, uh, mostly because I fell into a trap early when I had come back to the game where rather than just looking at the stats, I said, well, I'm rarely going to get a heroic trigger on this. But if it didn't have that text, if it was just a black mana for two one that entered tapped, I probably would have played it. That's fair. Um, it was one of those things is it was instantly good and it would actually close games out. If you could bestow it or have heroic triggers on it two or three times, that could mean the difference between losing or winning the game. Yeah, it seems like if you really have a dedicated heroic deck or a lot of bestow creatures, it would gain a lot of value. Um, why don't you try something much better, Ordeal of Nylea? So, oh, I love the ordeals. So they were a cycle of five cards. They each were two mana, converted mana cost. Um, the green one, Ordeal of Nylea, was one colorless and a green, and it enchanted a creature. Whenever enchanted creature attacks, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Then, if it has three or more plus one, plus one counters on it, you sacrifice Ordeal of Nylea. When you sacrificed Ordeal of Nylea, you search your library for up to two basic land cards, you put them onto the battlefield tapped, then you shuffled your library. These were great. Um, as you mentioned, they were a cycle. They all had a, the same text initially. When it attacks, it gets a counter. If that's the third counter or more, you sacrifice the ordeal. You know, this one gets basics. Um, ordeal of Erebos in black, target player discarded two cards. Heliod was white. You gain 10 life, which sometimes put you out of range. Um, ordeal of Perforos was red. That dealt three to any target. So you basically get a lightning bolt. And Ordeal of Thassa was probably my favorite because when you sack it, you draw two cards. That's a slow divination that I was interested in. 100%. And they were all, all playable, almost all first picks. So this would be my first pick after um, now. And then Lash of the Whip would be my, sec my second one. So the nice thing about these ordeals is that they triggered a lot faster than they read, especially with heroic creatures. You would play the ordeal... On a heroic creature, you would put so many plus one, plus one counters on it, and then you would attack, and more often than not, that would get the third plus one, plus one counter on the creature. That would then trigger that ordeal, and you got to do fun stuff. The one I'm especially thinking of that was also in green was Staunch-Hearted Warrior. It was three colors and a green for a 2-2 two -two human warrior that the heroic trigger was put two plus one, plus one counters on it. So a lot. So you on turn five, after you play Staunch-Hearted Warrior, you play the ordeal on it, and attack with it and now you have a 5-5 five five that you get to search two more lands so you can play bigger monstrous costs and bigger heroic creatures and it was all around fantastic yeah that was a card i rarely played there was also an uncommon version of that centaur battlemaster that was a five mana three three where the heroic trigger was three plus one plus one counters i definitely tried to play them earlier and found that i didn't trigger them enough so i kind of abandoned that strategy but if you could get ordeals those cards became much better much much better so yeah, I, I would be taking Ordeal at this point for sure. So our last uncommon is Prowler's Helm. It's a two mana equipment with equip cost two. An equipped creature can't be blocked except by walls. Really weird thing to print in this set where there was literally one wall in the set. So basically what it means is equipped creature is unblockable. Yeah, it's super weird. To be honest, before we opened it, or when you opened it, I should say, I couldn't have told you what it did and... I'm already forgetting what it does. Yeah, not uh, not very exciting, not worth the cost. Well, we have a rare that I think you will be interested in that would definitely be my first pick. It is Prognostic Sphinx. Oh, Prognostic Sphinx. So it was three colorless and two blue. 
It was a Sphinx. It was a 3-5. It had flying. And then it had a lot of good text. So we'll go over the first ability, besides flying. So besides flying, uh, its second ability, Prognostic Sphinx, is you could discard a card. And when you do, Prognostic Sphinx gained hexproof until end of turn, and you tapped it. So you can't kill it, is what you're saying. You can't kill it. And then whenever it attacked, you got to scry three. 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 Scry three almost feels like draw a card. You get so much deck selection that it's an extremely valuable effect. It was super valuable. This was constructed playable. Um, that's how good it is. And in, especially in limited, this thing never died. It If it died, you either you were playing against a monstrous Nessian Asp, and then the question is, why were you attacking? And the other uh, thing was, is if it could go through this end of the game after one or two hits, because you were just going to draw the perfect set of cards every single time right after it attacked. Yeah, that level of card selection gets you ways to get your it through, uh, kill your opponent's creatures that could block it, um, You know, have other things to protect it if you wanted to. I played against this card a lot in Constructed, and it was absolutely miserable to play against. So I would definitely first pick it in Draft, followed by Ordeal of Nylea, followed by Lash of the Whip. Is that where you're at? I agree with that ranking. And the other thing, too, if you take Prognostic Sphinx, you were actually getting into one of the best colors in Theros Draft, which is blue, mainly because of Nimbus Naiad, which is a card we talked about before. Yeah, I would put a Nimbus Naiad on my Prognostic Sphinx, no problem. Mm. Sounds good. Sounds good. So one of the great things about Theros is that all the little details really came out well when you really look at all the cards. When you understand the flavor of what Wizards was trying to do and what the design was going for, a lot of the set just makes sense. Uh, of the last couple of sets that Wizards has released, uh, and we, when we're recording this, they had just released Dominaria, there aren't but one or two I would feel that would be worth revisiting, which is fine. Not every block is worth going back to, and sometimes there isn't a story worth exploring more. Theros was definitely not that. Not only did they have a cliffhanger where, spoiler alert for those who care about the story, Elspeth is dead, but there's at least one more set worth of cards and flavor that are contained within this entire block. Um, did David, are you excited about Wizards returning back to Theros? Absolutely. Um, you know, as a newly returned player, I really liked that it was so straightforward and I knew what I was supposed to do. Um, it was mechanically somewhat interesting. Um, you know, I think that Bestow was really cool. I think Heroic gave you a lot of unique things to do. Monstrosity's great. I loved Monstrosity. I was really excited that they brought Monstrosity back and Conspiracy Take the Crown and gave us some new creatures with the ability. It seems like there's a decent amount of design space there. It's basically a delayed version of the kicker mechanic on a creature. Um, so I hope that we can go back to Theros and we can do that again. Devotion, I was a little less excited about. Um, not that interesting. Can I count the number of symbols? Yes. Okay, well, we did it. Um, and I'm not as excited <laughs> about that. But flavor-wise, uh, I think there's a lot to explore. Enchantment-themed set, I thought that was really interesting. So yeah, I would like to go back to Theros sometime. Oh, 100%. And the other thing is, is we, as we'll remember the cards in the rest of the block at some point, there were actually really good mechanics in the last set of the block, which is Journey into Nyx. And those would be really exciting to come back. And Mark Rosewater has talked about that those were really the mechanics that should have been in original Theros from the beginning. So when they do go back, it'll be really exciting to see 
more cards with bestow and constellation. I'm with you on devotion to Mon- monstrous. I also will say too that heroic was fine, but it was a little too basic, which was you know. Whatever. Sure. I think it would maybe be more interesting in a set with better removal where you were really taking a risk putting things on your creatures and it wasn't this battle cruiser magic where you're trying to you know make one giant thing and smash in with it right and the nice thing about battle cruiser magic it's fun to do once in a while if you do that for three or four sets i'm not going to name names but it gets really boring (laughs) that's fair um and i will say too and i wonder if you agree with this i feel like that original theros is fantastic the rest of that block though Except, you know, Born Born of the Gods is the real offender here. It kind of ruined the rest of that block. Yeah, Born was not particularly fun. I thought, as you mentioned, Journey had some interesting things going for it, specifically the constellation mechanic where when an enchantment entered the battlefield under your control, something triggered. Um, I'd be interested to see, learning what they've learned from the block together, what they would put together for a one or two set return to Theros. I think they could do some really exciting things. Oh, 100%. Well, this was fun. There are a ton of cards I'd still love to talk about. So now that we've introduced Theros, we'll have to revisit in a future episode. Before we wrap up, do you remember the biggest creature you ever made in Theros Limited? This is the set with Heroic and plus one, plus one counters and Bestow. How ridiculous did you get? Um, I got pretty big, actually. And I will say, I think you're probably imagining a giant Wingsteed Rider with five things bestowed onto it. I actually didn't go that direction. Uh, there was a card in the set called Colossus of Akros. Uh, bear with me here. It was a rare artifact. It was an 8-mana 10-10 golem with defender and indestructible. Um, so 10-10 on its own. Uh, this card is bad, but it reminded me of Colossus of Sardia from Antiquities back in the old days, so I was interested. Um, it has 10 mana for Monstrosity 10. So if you invest 18 mana into it over a couple of turns, you have a 20-20, and then as long as it's monstrous, the Colossus has trample and can attack as though it didn't have defender. So it's basically a 2020 indestructible trampling creature. Um, it's a card you should not have put in your deck. I definitely won the game where I made it monstrous, and I'm pretty sure I went one and two in that draft. <laughs> that, How about you? I mean, you, I imagine you had a giant Wingsteed Rider. Oh, it was definitely a giant Wingsteed Rider, but you got to live the dream. So I'm just not going to follow. I can't follow that story. You can't follow Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech, and I can't follow the Colossus of Acro story. Uh, I think that's smart. Well, thank you for joining us today. You can find us on Twitter at RememberMTG, or you can send us an email at RememberSomeCards at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, and tell us what you want to remember. In the weeks ahead, we're going to crack some packs. We're going to interview some special guests about the cards they remember. There's so much fun stuff coming up. Next week, I'm going to make Christian remember some of his all-time greats. So be ready for that, buddy. Super excited. Until next time, don't forget to remember some cards. 